Digital brings you Launch Base. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The world of tech startups reimagined. Build and elevate your idea, product, and company as we take you behind the scenes with successful entrepreneurs, investors, and tech professionals. These mentors showed me a map of success. Learn from inspiring stories, business strategies, and marketing techniques that will take your business to the next level. Are you ready? And now your host, John Radford. Hey, and welcome to another episode of LaunchBase. This is the podcast all about tech startups and everything digital product. If you haven't listened to the show before, this is a podcast all about startups, starting on your journey, corporation looking to be more agile in product development. We've got you covered. So on today's podcast, we are delighted to have Will Hepworth, who's general partner at Tier Ventures, join us. So Tier Ventures is a seed stage venture capital fund based in New York. Wills, you're going to do a better job of introducing yourself than me, but Wills is an exceptional entrepreneur, a mentor of budding dreamers, and a solutions builder to problems that matter to him. Wills, thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. All right. And how was the intro to you there? Um, does that capture you well? I, I hate, having to, I hate having to do intros on other people. Uh, oh, it awful. means that I have to do some preparing, right. but uh, it's always better said from them. You know, it's so hard to kind of tie it all together in a quick, call it 60 seconds, but we ask our entrepreneurs to do the same. So uh, <laughs> what can I say? Born in New York City, grew up here. Both my parents were entrepreneurs in the medical field. I don't think it's any coincidence that I'm doing what I'm doing now. They took mm-hmm. a lot of risks throughout their career. I grew up here, went to a high school where I lived away. It was a boarding school. And then in between high school and college, I took what you would call a gap year uh, right. over there. <laughs> and um, you, uh, you know what? It was my best friend and I, we had a bicycle and two bicycles and tents. And we went all over South America and all over New Zealand. We spent the summer awesome. prior doing all sorts of odd jobs, I saved up a bunch of money. And then in a very, I, you know, I'd say I didn't think of it at the time, entrepreneurial fashion. It was, what are we going to do today? How are we going to eat? Where are we going to sleep? What's the goal? Right. What are we trying to accomplish? So it was an amazing experience. Yeah, sure. Went to college, small liberal arts school, upstate New York, 3,000 students at the university. And when I graduated, I worked in finance for a number of years in a traditional role uh, at Morgan Stanley, investment banking, kind of kicked and screamed my whole way through it and got out, you know, basically left. And I was a little aimless for about a year and a half trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But I had had a little business in college that I had run, which was a t-shirt printing company. And I was sitting kind of saying to myself, like, wow, I wish I had done more of that at a school. There was just like an unbelievable experience. We built something. We had a team. It it worked on some level, but it was like you know pretty you know pretty much didn't work out. We made money, but it didn't turn into the thing that we had wanted it to be. Uh-huh. And so, looking back on that, this was two thousand ten, nine ten, and I said to myself, I bet there's a lot of students on college campuses right now that have ideas that are going to transform the way that the world lives, thinks, operates. And I know what they need is more than just capital. Why don't I put together some some funding and go out and try to invest and support these entrepreneurs 
and hopefully be able to share some lessons with them that I had already accumulated on how not to do things. So, So that was what I did. I had a small pool of capital. And very serendipitously, I met a person who is now my partner in the fund. And he pretty much changed the trajectory of my life ever since then. He and I wound up building this full-fledged institute for entrepreneurship at the university at Colgate. It's still up and running. It's 12 years old now. I'd argue it's the best liberal arts entrepreneurship program maybe in the world. It's really unique. And that was also a springboard that helped us launch our fund back in 2014. So anyway, I met this guy, Andy. We started working together. We built this program at Colgate, worked with now hundreds, maybe thousands of student entrepreneurs, and then we launched the fund and the rest is history. All right, cool. There's tons that I want to pick out from that. But I think we've got a like a combination of some dreaming big, some a little bit of luck, like you say, some serendipity, some lessons learned, and kind of that application then kind of brought brought together where you're at now. So let's let's talk about where you're at now, Tia Ventures. Can you give me a snapshot on that? And then we're gonna talk a little bit about in more detail about kind of the entrepreneur side of things and how we can kind of give some advice to those guys in that community. Sure thing. So TIA Ventures, it's an acronym, Thought Into Action, based here in New York City, where, you know, you'd call us seed, pre-seed, but that kind of depends on where you are in the world. What it really means to us is we try to be the first institutional investors in the companies that we wind up partnering with. There may be some previous angels, but right now we're investing out of our second fund. We're typically investing about $500,000 at initial. We try to pull together a group of you know savvy investors that we've worked with over the years to come in. And, and ideally, these companies are raising about a million five to about $3 million. And our North Star, the thing that got us started, the thing that is still there, it's super durable, it works, is identifying what we call visceral product market fit. So not just product market fit, but like customers who can't live without the product or the service. And really, that's engagement that's happening below the neck, in the heart or the gut, not above the neck, in the head. We're not interested in this. We think that's kind of intellectual BS. We're looking for companies that have you know, built that level of visceral product market fit with their earliest customers, earliest users, earliest triers and adopters. And the way we find it is by doing really rigorous diligence, customer diligence with those individuals at okay. a level that most companies, I would say at that stage, aren't doing or just don't have the capacity to do. Yeah. Okay. So I can't come to TIA with a PowerPoint and some dreams. You can. And we're always happy to talk. Listen, I'm always happy to hear out any entrepreneur. But as far as you know, ultimately getting to a partnership, and this is a lesson learned, there have been a few instances throughout our history where we violated this North Star. Not a few, mm-hmm. a couple where we made our decision based off of more more of what I call the intellectual or assent in the market to the pain and the need for a solution, but a company that had not yet actually built the solution. Uh-huh. Right. And I often think and say to you know people that I get to work with, I don't know how to build the mousetrap. I don't know how to do the magic show, right? Like that's yeah. you. And, and the great thing these days is that you can create an amazing product or a service at a very low cost in the garage or in a dorm room. 
Mm-hmm. And then you have to do this whole other thing to turn this into a successful company, which is build a team that can scale that product or service. Yeah. And that's where we come in. And that's where we see teams kind of having tons and tons of problems. Because oftentimes, you know, you're working with young entrepreneurs who have never done that. They've never hired. They've never built job descriptions. They've never done interviews. They've never thought aggressively about how to scale They've never thought about the need to bring professionals on, not just kind of like young go-getters and, and eager beavers that are going to learn on the job. So, Yeah, and, and that's a whole different skill set. And so do you guys put people or do you have a support network in place where you can kind of help these young entrepreneurs with these kind of these soft skills that aren't necessarily something that they would have had experience with? We do, but I'd say the first thing that has to happen is you have to get get them over the hump on recognizing the importance of it. Right. Because again, like oftentimes they've never hired, they built this thing that's special. The customer mm-hmm. loves it. They can't live without it. it solves huge pain in their lives. Yeah. Now, how do you get it to market, right? And oftentimes they've never built the teams required, the ones that we all admire, all the brands that we know, that you look at and you're like, oh, wow, that you know, it's just a great product that sold itself. No, like that's yeah. just not how it worked. So mm-hmm. yeah, we do have um, we do have a lot of support and mechanisms for helping them do that. And we'll get in in the weeds on job descriptions all the way up to high level kind of final interviews with CMOs, you know, heads of sales. But the biggest challenge is getting them over the hump. Mm-hmm. In our experience. Sure, sure. That's really interesting. So I want to take a step back and talk about the kind of the product market fit aspect so and and actually take a step back even before that so i've I've got my idea so i'm going to go and build that with some angel funding some friends and family around and and, and that kind of stuff now i want to talk specifically about the product itself and what i need to do to get that product market fit and what i'll quantify what i'm talking about here is i have at born you know tons of conversations with like young entrepreneurs who just have their PowerPoint and their dream, and they want us to go build them something. And a lot of the time, it's kind of like, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do, we need to build out this, this part of the platform, we need to have like real time chat, we need to have tons of crazy cool features. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're smiling. You've obviously heard this before. And you know, it's a really difficult conversation for us to have, because, you know, we're trying to tell them, this is my belief, anyway, that in order to obtain product market fit, you don't necessarily need to build all of that. Like a single platform release, if it's an app, for instance, would be fine. So like you say, get these kind of thousands of users and and whatever that might be. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on how we define the product market fit, what, what your definition of the MVP is and whether that's still relevant to you guys and all of that, really. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, it's such a interesting, hard area. I mean, listen, this is the hardest part, right? Mm-hmm. Part mm-hmm. of what we do to limit some of the risk is we focus mostly on B2B solutions. Okay. Yep. And the reason for that is the B2B buyer has far more homogeneous needs, yeah. homogeneous wants, hopes, dreams, pains, aspirations. If I run a restaurant in New York City or I run a restaurant in Milwaukee or in London, generally I have like the same issues that I'm going through, right? Yeah. Whereas on the consumer side, and so for us, we can diligence those 
those buyers way more efficiently than trying to figure out something that is you know more kind of consumer direct to consumer facing where you'd have to sample a much larger audience segment by age gender socioeconomic etc so anyway we we try to limit a bit of the risk by focusing mostly on b2b that said you know a lot would a lot of people would say that the bigger opportunities are in kind of the consumer facing services and products that can go viral and the sky's the growth aspect yeah yeah but um you know, I, I'd say one really important thing here out of the gate is, and this is maybe people coming to you to, to help or people coming to us, like, do you think or do you know? And it sounds like a really simple, basic question, but I don't care what the founders think. I only want to know what they know. Because unless they think it's a great idea and they're willing to buy a million units, nothing matters. The only mm-hmm. thing that matters is what does the customer or user or potential user say? And when you get to that point, you start to ask yourself, well, listen, there's a million pains in the world, but what is a pain that's worth that the customer is willing to either pay for or give of their time for? Mm-hmm. And as far as like building a solution to that, I mean, this whole notion of MVP and the product, like the product out of the gate could literally be a phone and a spreadsheet. Right. And the learnings gained, the insights gained by just doing it for like, I don't know, five people, 10 people, 20 people will be so important because hopefully somewhere in that process, you find out what the really special thing is. Not what you thought, but what you find out you know, because 30 people in this little control that you're doing are all saying the same thing. And now I come to John and say, Hey, I want to build the whole product around this thing. This like little thing that I never could have known unless I had actually gotten into the market and tried doing this, solving some problem for my target. Instead of, I want to build all these bells and whistles and you launch it to the market and it's crickets because nobody cares. Or there's like one little thing that they're like obsessed with and falling in love with. And it's like, well, why couldn't we have figured that out six months earlier and just built the whole product around that? Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome takeaway. Uh, You know, obviously something that I subscribe to. So hearing it from, you know, someone like yourself is, is really helpful. And I think that's helpful for young entrepreneurs. So let's, let's like kind of fast forward a little bit. We've done that. We've built a tiny little MVP. We've validated an idea or, or actually been shown a different idea. And that's cool. And then we're going to go, we're going to build it out to a degree. You know, we're going to, it's a, it's now a kind of a more fully fledged product. What, what then am I doing? So let's say I then decide I'm going to chuck a bunch of marketing dollars at this thing and buy a bunch of users and then go to someone like yourselves and go, Hey, look, you know, we've got 10,000 users on the platform. How do you as an investor validate a company like that who's basically kind of acquiring users through kind of a marketing spend and you know it's just a price on a on a dollar for what, what they're kind of paying for a user? So so this is where we come back to this North Star. And again, this right. is just the way we look at the world. It's the lens that we look through. Assuming this is a B2B type opportunity, there probably yep. won't be 10,000 at the stage that we're getting involved. No. Let's say there's 100 or 200. 
which is often the case for us. Sometimes it's less, but sometimes, you know, one of our companies works with landlords and they're a B, B2B, but they're a small B in their case because they're going after people that have one, two, three, five properties, it's passive income, they have day jobs, but they think about it as a, you know, it's they're they're operating professionally. So in this case, you know, they had 150 landlords at the time when we met them. Mm-hmm. They built this, and I don't I want to underscore just how hard it is to build the right thing. Like it's easy for me to say because I don't have to do it. Uh, I don't know how to do it. You know, that's for the entrepreneurs that we're partnering with to figure out. In this case, you know, they built this really special tool that saw it saved time in the day. It got payments faster to the landlords. It was able to increase their kind of satisfaction levels because they were really fast in response on any maintenance-related items that were happening in the home. There were all these benefits surrounding this product. And you know, some of the data looked compelling. To your point, how do you know if they haven't just been throwing, you know, marketing spend at it? So then we, for us, we moved to some diligence with customers and we have a whole toolkit that we've developed over decades now, really for understanding that visceral engagement again, below the neck. And one of the tools we use, so, so we'll set up interviews with a bunch of these customers to figure out like, why, why do you care? Like, why is this important to you? Why are you willing to pay for it? How, how much, uh, to what extent can you not live without it now? Yeah. So anyway, as part of these interviews, and they're very structured, my, my business partner, Andy, spent his life doing this in the consumer market research space, built a lot of the most successful companies, a lot of the gold standard tools for drilling into the customer's head. So one of the exercises that we'll do with them is, is essentially kind of telling them a lie. and We let them know after the fact that it was just an exercise. Mm-hmm. But we basically pull the product away. We threaten to you know, say, hey, how, how are you going to, you know, how would you respond if all of a sudden this product disappeared? Right. And what we're really looking for is profanity, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> F no, you can't <laughs> out of, you know, not out of my, you know, not out of my hands. I'll fight you to the mat. And there's a really interesting, I think you can do this also on the consumer side. There's a really interesting article about this that was published by the team at Superhuman through uh-huh. first round capital. And they talk a lot about product market fit. And they they built a survey that's actually very similar to some of the stuff that we do with customers. I highly encourage people to go look at this, to run this test. It's really simple. You can do it. It's just like three or four questions that you can ask your users. But we're just trying to find companies that once people use them, their product or service, they can't live without it. They won't churn. They're going to stick around forever. So, I mean, I, I don't have clear answers other than talk to customers, like be really yeah. curious about your customers and early users and adopters. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a real common theme. But I like the the bit about, you know, can you live without it? It's kind of like a, an interview question of what would your employer, current employer said, you know, if you if you were leaving, would they be sad to see you go? Right. <laughs> <laughs> if they're not sad to see you go, then you've got a problem. Well, can you just remind us what that... Um, the uh, from Superhuman. We'll yeah, it was um, it was the link. If you just search Superhuman product market fit, um, yep. 
First Round Capital was one of their early investors. I think the article's published in two different places. And there's also a podcast out there that talks only about product market fit. And they interviewed, I can't remember, I listened to it in the car, but they were talking about this article that was published. And I think there's an agency that's been created that just does this kind of analysis for their clients. All right, cool. Okay, well, we will uh, we'll stick a link in the description for everybody for that one. So on the subject of superhumans, the entrepreneurs themselves, how important is that to you? Their credentials, their background, are they kind of MBA, Harvard grads? Or, you know, what? what's... Uh, I mean, I'm, there's tons of successful MBA, Harvard grads, but is that a prerequisite? Or can I just be a young dreamer who's super passionate and knows what they're doing? Yeah, for us, it's way more the latter. Um, uh-huh. Listen, we we want to find teams that are re- deeply, like in their bones, passionate about solving this problem. Yeah, they're insanely resilient because they're going to get punched in the gut a lot throughout, you know, throughout the process. Sure, they're curious, right? They're just mm-hmm. curious about all things. It's not like, oh, our product's not working. Let's just throw marketing spend at it. It's like, no, why is why doesn't the customer love this yet? Why is it not? Why has this not become part of their daily workflow? And then on the last piece, I'd say coachable. They don't have to like reinvent the wheel at every juncture of their business. They don't have to, you know, constantly be learning on the job. There's a lot of best practices that they can steal from other companies that have done it that they can incorporate and that helps them avoid accumulating scars along the way that are unnecessary. So yeah, I'd say those are kind of the four qualities that matter most to us: passion, resilience, coachability, and curiosity. Yeah. Um, we don't care about you know the 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 badges on the resume. Sure, they're nice. I think you know. Yeah. I think they're they show that you're smart, knowledgeable, can work hard. But it's definitely not something that we uh, screen for. I I will say one of the benefits of our whole model that we didn't expect was that after we do our, our rigorous diligence with customers, this is pre-partnership with a company, we yeah. get to come back to the entrepreneurs and talk with them about what we learned. Sometimes it's new information. Sometimes it's information that doesn't quite accord with their worldview. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it validates things that they already knew or some hypotheses that they had. But for us, that's become a huge opportunity to see how these entrepreneurs wrestle with new information and insights. And sometimes we meet people that say, you know what, I know my business, just looking for money. And maybe they'll figure it out. Like, listen, there's plenty of examples where they do. For us, it's like, well, we don't want to work with entrepreneurs. You know, we don't want to work with founders like that. If they're leaning in saying, tell me more. Tell me about what you heard. Oh, that's really interesting. That's something that I thought, oh, that's totally new to me. I hadn't considered that. Maybe that's you know going to make its way into our marketing and positioning. Uh, oh, wow. That's like, that helps me think through how we can get to market because I hadn't quite thought that this was our, our target. We want entrepreneurs that like, because if, if they're not listening to us and, you know, like, we start to wonder, are they listening to any? And I'm not saying we have the best information, but we'd like to know that they're listening. 
that yeah. they're curious, that they yeah. want more so information, wanna, not less. You want a natural curiosity, but open to accepting advice. You know, sure, they don't have to follow not, it, but to just about, listen just, yeah. and digest it, and yeah. see, you know, and 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 kind of digest it in your own way. Because if you're not like, I I, I don't know. Because uh, then you're just relying on yourself too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, uh, yeah. Absolutely. You know? Okay, so I want to talk about a success story from from TIA, something that you guys are proud of, perhaps what that product was, what the company was, what went right there, what you know, what what made it a success? Was there any? Was was it just a great product, or was it you know what what was it? I mean, there's there's a bunch that yeah. we're really excited and proud about. There's one in particular with an entrepreneur that we knew since. Uh, fr- freshman or sophomore year in college, he went through our program at Colgate. Mm-hmm. He himself, he's just a very special, unique. There's not a lot of him in the world, I would say. Yeah. Okay, um, stars in the eyes. And you know, there's there's ego, but he doesn't allow it to interfere with his ability to listen. Cool. And in any event, they basically he had started a company at a college. It was it was a. A success. It wasn't like something that you're going to hear about in the press, but he wound up building this company up, selling it. He went to go work at the acquirer for uh, about a year. I think it was like 364 days and then he quit because <laughs> it was a disaster. But like he learned okay. so much along the way. Yeah. And right, like, right afterwards, he had this idea about a need that was going to emerge in the cannabis industry. And mm-hmm. he started doing some, you know, investigating with the players, all the various stakeholders in the space, and kind of rapid prototyped a product that was going to connect retailers and brands. Because up until that point, like everything was basically being done on loose leaf notebooks. Brands were hopping in their cars to go to the retailers, show them their product. Retailers didn't have visibility into who was in the market, who had good stuff to carry. And he really, that was like the kernel of the idea. We had worked with him. We were, we had already invested in his previous business. We said, yeah, we're going to back you 100% day one. It's been this amazing story. We've learned so much from him. We've been lucky to, you know, find some key talent that he's been able to bring in house to the team, both technology as well as the financial side of their business. And, but because they executed so well on this original problem, which was just visibility in the market as far as who had product that was good and who were the retailers that would carry it, they've gained 90 plus percent market share in all the key states. They've launched a whole other business, which is a trade credit. It's like basically a lending piece to their company. They're doing a full distribution side of their business. They're like Amazon now in cannabis. Wow, cool. And they don't touch. They don't. They don't touch product. It's a technology company. Yeah. So, the way I think about what they've created is: imagine the alcohol industry were to start again, and you didn't have these distributors and the retail. You just didn't have this like really complicated model. Yeah. This is what you would create. Um, wow. That's so anyway, it's been a runaway success. There, they execute ahead of plan you know, under budget, they're growing like a weed, pun intended, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's been this great story of just an awesome partnership where we've been very involved on talent, on strategy. We've learned so much from the entrepreneur and 
Yeah. And he, and he's been super helpful with some of our portfolio companies as well. So it's just this like virtuous cycle. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to take away from that. You've got a few things. You've got a great founder who has a you know enough of an ego to keep that drive, but is uh, curious. You've got a great product, great idea. And then you've also got execution, which is the bit that you mentioned that I love because a lot of people talk about, you know, pro, uh, a product is kind of like 20% idea, 80% execution, right? So you've got to execute. Well, and on his execution, I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. He's always hired pros mm-hmm. into the key functions of his business that day one arrive with a playbook, with a yeah. whole bunch of their own lessons learned. Yeah, this is what sure. I did over here. Like, sure, they have to learn the nuances of this industry and how that kind of influences their strategy, but like they're not learning on the job. They know they know the task at hand and they've done it before. And he's phenomenal at that because he yeah. knows like, you know, he, he doesn't want to waste any time. There's this huge opportunity in the market and they have to move faster than anybody else. And the best way to do that is to get the best people on the team. Yeah, great, great. So team as well, team's important. So Wills, I just want to quickly touch upon, you know, we have a small little satellite thing going on in NYC. Haven't been able to get across for in Dumbo, a long right? time now. Unfortunately. Yeah, in Dumbo, that's right. Yeah, yeah, cool part, cool part of town. Love it that. It's kind of like the, I don't know if, how familiar you are with London, but we've got a kind of the tech scene is centered around Old Street shortage area. It's kind of Dumbo's got that slight kind of shortage you feel, which is which is nice. So I haven't been able to get across for a while, but like, what's what's the NYC space looking like right now? And and you know, is is this a real high growth area for startups? Is it is it kind of like number two to San Fran over in the US? I, I think I think New York is such a great place for B2B startups, to be honest, Mm -hmm. because you have industries that are so mature. It's like the hub of law, the hub of finance, the hub of media and entertainment, theater. Like, you know, it's like whatever it is that you're, uh, whatever industry you're kind of playing in, New York has one of the best markets for it. And I think as a result, you have these, you know, very advanced, mature markets that have all sorts of problems that need to be Mm -hmm. solved. And I think from that perspective, an entrepreneur who's based here has an opportunity to build products and services that solve real pain and sell in immediately to like all the law firms, all the banks. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're on the West Coast out in San Francisco, the industry is tech, right? And I think as a result... You know, the, the opportunities are really kind of moonshot opportunities, which is awesome. I mean, I mean, like the stuff that's going on over there is just unbelievable. But I think as as it relates to New York, because you have all these industries kind of surrounding you, it's like, wow, we can just start start solving pain for mm-hmm. you know customers in this in this space very easily and get entrenched with them. So I like that. And and so has, has COVID kind of played a part at all? Have, are you seeing, has it been a tough year for investors? Have, have people been more cautious or is it just, you know, business as usual? I mean, maybe I'm just naive and holed up here in our little uh, apartment in my little workstation here in Brooklyn. But uh, we've been super active 
you know, a handful of our portfolio companies have done incredibly well during COVID. It's been a huge tailwind for them, right. you know, because customers need to be as effective, if not more so virtual. They want yeah. more contactless solutions. So, I mean, COVID, I, we're seeing, you know, tons of deals getting done. We haven't seen valuations all that impacted on the great opportunities. If If anything, they're kind of like, they're more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, certain companies that have been affected are the ones that are in like restaurant industry or, mm-hmm. you know, have heavy exposure to tourism and travel. But to the credit of the founders in those spaces, you know, the ones that will survive this storm are the ones that are the most adaptable, okay. coachable, resilient, uh, curious. So, and we're seeing that play out right now. It's like, great, we built this great technology. All of a sudden, the market fell out. Where can we reapply this in, yeah. in a really interesting way that's maybe even more relevant in a post-COVID world than we're, what we were trying to do prior? Yeah, cool. Well, that's a really nice takeaway. I mean, there's so many points that that you know we can take away from, from this session. We are kind of... Uh, over time slightly, but that, that's cool. It's just been a really engaging discussion. Is there anything you want to kind of leave as a parting comment for, for people starting out? Don't be focused on starting a startup. Okay. Right? Like it's, it's, I, you, I know there's so much press and media now about how cool it is. And like, you see these success stories, it really starts with some problem that calls you to action that you become obsessed with solving. And just stay focused on that. Like, it's not about just starting a startup. Like the entrepreneurs of previous times didn't even think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Yeah. Like this whole term is such a product of kind of like our era. Just stay focused on like solving problems, being passionate. If it turns into a unicorn, awesome. If it turns into a $50 million business, if it turns into a small lifestyle business, whatever, like, don't try to start a startup. Yeah, yeah. Stay passionate. Stay focused. Yeah. Love it, Will. All right. Cheers, Wells. Thank you for your time. It's been great talking to you. John, really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Wills. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of LaunchBase, brought to you by Born Digital. Mission complete. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. For more info and to stay connected off the show, visit launchbase.fm.